Hello and welcome to Spade Work, a podcast where organizers from all kinds of places and struggles talk about the hard lessons learned through their political work, what organizing means for them, what keeps on going wrong, what great victories they had, and what made them. You are listening to our very first episode. When preparing for it, we called it Organizing the Organizers, although later we figured becoming organizers might be more fitting. Daniel and I are currently living in Berlin, Germany, but first met in San Diego. In both places, we were involved in left politics. Like so many US Americans of his age, Daniel basically started with Occupy, moving onto a politics with more organizational density. I would say after the experience of these politics of the square, he, along with many other comrades of his political generation, had a strong desire for something more structured. I, on the other hand, was socialized with very local, more autonomous structures that we partially tried to upscale in, for example, student struggles in the early aughts. In most cases, I have to say, with very little success. In the following years, I was looking for more inclusive ways of political engagement. Together, Daniel and I were involved in student and unionization struggles in the US. We also helped developing a little cardio organization. And here in Berlin, we were involved in the refugee migration struggles and are currently in the process of building a little movement school in order to make us, in the left, better at fighting the good fight. The school and the idea of shared learning is also behind this podcast, where we try to talk with other organizers and activists openly about the little and all the big things that we stumble over, struggle with, or try to overcome. We will talk today with two comrades, organizers, activists from Canada. Charmaine Khan from Toronto, where she's a trainer at Tools for Change, an organization that trains people to become better activists, organizers, and changemakers. She's also an editor at Upping the Anti, a radical journey of theory and action, which provides a space to reflect on the state of political organizing in Canada and beyond. Also with us is Chris Dixon, who is an educator and author. He currently lives in Ottawa, where he's a member of the Punch-Up Collective, an organization that focuses on building resilient, radical movements in their city. His book, Another Politics, focuses on political practices in an anti-authoritarian left by collecting voices from different struggles in Canada and the United States. The two have a shared history and struggle, know each other, and are friends. So welcome Charmaine and Chris, and thank you for being here with us on this very first episode. So both of you have a long history on the left, and all of us here have a history that predates the current political conjuncture that is at least partially defined by a rapid and expansive politicization of lots of folks across the global north, many of which are joining movements and organizations for the first time. And that's a big step. And a really strange one, as we all know, because suddenly you're involved with people in unfamiliar ways in organizational ways. You're trying to pull resources and labor in order to achieve an outcome and effect on the institutions and environments that define our everyday life. At the same time, people actually do have organizational experience, right? Our work or our need for an income gives us the experience of being organized in a larger economic system. But your being at work and achieving that outcome is accomplished through authoritarian and really dictatorial mechanisms. You got to be nice. You got to be a team player. You got to do your part in this organization because if you don't, your livelihood is fundamentally threatened and you can just get fired, right? But that's capitalist organization. The self-organization of workers and everyday people is totally different. Here we got to struggle to stay together and to achieve our objectives in our off time from work and without relying on clear, previously established structures and rules, right? We have to build those ourselves. There's a lot of people that are making the leap to self-organization for the first time, and suddenly they got to grapple with so many problems in non-authoritarian ways. And at the same time, they're probably entering spaces where the, con uh, the conversation is informed by a bunch of debates and questions and problems that we on the left have been struggling with for a long time. So there's a learning curve. And I'd like to start off by asking you, Charmaine, 
why do people need training and what kind of function do you see Tools for Change and other movement schools fulfilling? Yeah, well, thanks, Daniel, for that question and, yeah, and, that, and that backdrop. My last few years, yeah, I have, I have spent a lot of time um, just dedicated to this idea of training. I mean, I've been doing kind of workshops and facilitation for around 20 years, but I want to be more intentional about this idea of training education. Um, because I found that when people joined organizations or joined just kind of different activist spaces that maybe didn't have a defined organizing structure, um, they brought with them just a lot of, a lot of bad habits. Um, you know, a lot of habits that they learned in, uh, more capitalist driven, um, you know, relationships or organizations. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, people coming in from, um, would have ideas about just like hierarchy, um, you know, kind of bring in norms around like kind of from the nonprofit industrial complex, um, and not really think about how in the situation can we begin to think about transformative consciousness raising and education that will excite people, bring people on side rather than, um, other forms of organizing, which we see in, let's say, electoral organizing, like getting at the vote and things like that, which don't work, which don't create long-term buy-in, which don't create long-term movements. And, um, you know, it's this kind of grappling of needing to both deal with people one-on-one as individuals, but then also have, um, you know, a vision of, like, trying to, you know, build either a mass movement or try and reach hundreds of people um, for change. And so my dedication or my interest or, I guess, passion around training is around um, being able to experiment with different models and being able to unpack a lot of people's long-held beliefs in a way that's transformative rather than one that's based on shame or guilt. And for me, in my experience, I have found that when people enter organizations and activism, with that um, kind of perspective or kind of feeling around transformation and connection, that creates longer-term buy-in rather than trying to kill people or shame people to do the right things or say the right thing. And for me, my you know what I want to do is I want to build kind of like I want I don't want to say the word army, but basically uh, a large <laughs> army of people who are engaged um, and who can um, you know uh, not only just like not only for the feeling of doing the work, but who can really feel connected and change themselves. Um, so that's kind of where I bring in training. Um, you know, even, I think even from, like, I do a lot of like finance workshops and bookkeeping workshops, and I try to even hold on to those values of like transformation and connection, even when it's something kind of that's seemingly boring, um, because I want to have that feeling of investment. So yeah, that's kind of where I come from with Tools for Change and that kind of different like pedagogical shift around conscious raising. That's awesome. Can I add something to this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to mention another dimension which I've really heard Charmaine talk about before um, and I want to underline, which is that people uh, get involved in radical activism and organizing efforts. They come into movement, struggle, um, and they may, uh, in some cases, have some analysis of ruling institutions and power and some critiques of how that all operates, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people have skills. Mm-hmm. Analysis and organizing skills are actually two kind of separate things. Um, and a lot of times, I think, on the radical left, we mistake uh, really sophisticated analysis for the skills that are necessary to actually build movement. And so frequently, what I've heard Charmin talk about is that second piece, right, which is having some of the concrete skills along with the consciousness building and the analysis so that not only can we have a devastating critique of ruling institutions, but we can also have the skills for working with each other and building collectivities and struggle that are actually effective and can operate strategically to take on ruling. Absolutely. That kind of um, leads to the next uh, set of questions because um, we would like to get into some of these more specific elements that training can or should be about. 
and one almost prefigurative or or one very needed place um, for us in our analysis seems to be that there is a structure to remember. So when you train people, they learn something and then you want that knowledge ideally to remain in the movement even if they might leave because for whatever reason. So um, we don't mean remembering in like a ritualized way, but more in a line of like infrastructures that keep lessons for struggle so that the next struggle is more successful, better. Um, and in reality, these kind of elements of remembering quite often happen a little bit in attention because on the one hand, we can't afford to repeat the same mistakes all over again. But on the other hand, if you don't really have a space to do this remembering, it ends up being this quite often older dude in the corner that explains to the new people how being radical left actually functions. And um, if you want to avoid this remembering just being a hard-to-name internal hierarchy, yeah, you need to institutionalize it. And so... Chris, you reflected also in your book on that a lot. And obviously writing a book is a good way <laughs> to to create a space for remembering, but not everyone has the resources and abilities to write a book all the time. So we were wondering, have you encountered um, good ways that are not that one guy in the corner, but also not necessarily a book, like a middle ground that was functional to create spaces for remembering mistakes and remembering successes? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. And, and I agree with you. I actually think a book is completely insufficient for that kind of uh, collective remembering that's so necessary within movement. Um, and and I, I want to emphasize this point too, just because at least uh, in the context where we struggle uh, in the U.S. and Canadian radical left, part of the challenge is that there's so much turnover, right? Like, um, between political generations, and when I talk about political generations, I'm not talking about, you know, 10 or 20 years, I'm talking about two or three years, right? There's a whole new set of people who come in the mm -hmm. struggle and movement Absolutely. who don't necessarily have connections with people who literally just five years ago were deeply involved in things. So it's very, very difficult to sustain any kind of continuity um, of memory. And, and I agree with you as well that the dude in the corner. I mean, I think we can probably all think of examples of events <laughs> and meetings we've been at where there's a older, uh, just white dude usually who, um, you know, gets up at, at the end of the presentations or at some point in the discussion and basically tells everyone why they're wrong and, and how he knows everything and, and their ideas suck and it's all not going to work or whatever. Um, so yeah, I do, I do think that there are other examples. I've particularly been inspired by, um, community-based uh, projects that focus on uh, talking to movement elders um, and sharing those elders' reflections very widely. So, for example, uh, Vancouver, no one is illegal for a number of years, did a series called, which I think was called Inheriting Resistance, uh, where they actually went and sought out some folks who'd been around involved in local radical organizing for decades interviewed them on video um, and made those videos uh, available and also did some public events. Um, so it was a really intentional way of trying to lift up some of that experience uh, and uh, hold on to it and communicate it to other people, but not in a super didactic kind of way, right? Not in a way that it was about slapping down newer people's experiences, but instead, uh, you know, a two-way process of sharing because i mean the other thing that's important here is that uh if we'd known how to make a revolution we would have made it um, <laughs> and so and so uh newer people becoming involved in struggle for sure they don't necessarily have connections to some of the previous experiences but they have fresh ideas and circumstances are always changing so there's got to be it's got to be a way a two-way street right where we're mm -hmm. we're taking up these innovations and new ideas at the same time as we're sharing some kinds of hard-earned lessons from the past. And and I do think, sadly, that one of the most effective ways for uh, maintaining that kind of 
intergenerational memory is through organizations. And I say sadly because um, there, there aren't a lot of long-lasting, uh, effective, radical organizations, at least in our context. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, sort of very transient forms of intentional collectivity, uh, and that makes it very difficult. But I do, I do honestly believe that uh, longer-lasting organizations and institutions that can do things like talk to movement elders and get those kinds of experiences out are a really crucial part of it. Yeah, I think um, you, what you said, this intentional effort that might probably be the cornerstone, right? That there is a clear understanding that this coming together and talking about it is part of, of the broader process, not just something to have a coffee and listen, but like actually part of the political work. And, and I mean, this, this also, I think, really connects into the question of how do we build genuinely intergenerational movements, right, that aren't uh, focused on people who are within very narrow age groups only hanging out with each other and <laughs> one another. Um, and that, and that, in, that goes in two different directions, right? That goes in the direction of man maintaining connections with people as they age and move through life stages, uh, always having space within our movement as people move. Um, and in the other direction, it's about kids uh, welcoming in new generations of people and creating spaces where they can feel connected to these legacies of struggle. I was personally feeling a little attacked by the older leftists yelling in the meeting, but, um, <laughs> but I, I think but, I'm becoming that person. Oh, no, I seriously, I seriously disagree with you. You, you bring so much humility to <laughs> Um, Interesting that you I, say I, that. I've never seen that. Well, maybe maybe I just maybe I just scream them in my head um, at meetings. But um, yeah, I think um, I, I I think that sometimes sometimes I find that like people expect a lot from training. Like training can be fetishized. Like oh, if I just take this kind of one workshop on direct action, then I'm ready to go. And um, so yeah, I try, I try to bring in some like realistic expectations and humility. Because I think it is like a combination of all these things of like both training, both like be on the streets, being around people, both, um, you know, studying theory, um, you know, uh, in your organization or in your group, um, you know, and then also the element of like um, care and connection, you know, so that includes like being able to make spaces to like socialize and things like that. And so it's not just like a, a one thing. Unfortunately, like organizing or like, you know, how to make this thing move forward by um, trying to talk about how like all different elements of um, activity or work is a form of organizing, right? And so mm -hmm. people often feel like, oh, because I'm not, you know, out like able to like lead chants or like do a really solid speech, um, I'm a terrible organizer. And um, I think for me, it's trying to, you know, build capacity in an organization where no matter kind of like what you're doing is a form of organizing. There's a lot of stuff that, like, is invisible, you know, which is a lot of the care work and mostly done by women is often disregarded as, like, well, it's not organizing, right? You're just, like, doing the, you know, you're just, like, doing the, doing things to be nice because you care about the movement. And so I'm really trying to reshift that. And I, you know, I was trying to, like, you know, kind of, like, all those, you know, and, and so many organizing workshops that I attend, you know, to, like, build mm -hmm. my capacity I just, I leave with a lot of questions about like how unions, for example, see the natural organizer or how we find the natural organizer. And it's kind of funny because Jane McElvey talks about like the no, sh no shortcuts. And for me, like just to go to, to people who like seem like a natural organizer seems like a shortcut. For me, I'm like the long-term work is how we can build everyone's capacity, confidence, and their buy-in to do, like to be, to, like be involved in, in, in the revolution to change in our society. You know, and and without all those elements of like sitting, you know, from sitting down to coffee to conscious raising, like creating space for readings to, you know, um, ongoing um, training, but also like, you know, be, being able, I, I would only use the word mentorship, but being able to partner with people who are inexperienced and get them, you know, um, on the streets. I mean, the, the best training I've had was like just being kind of thrown into um, a lot of like, and then unexpected situations where I had to make consistent decision making, you know, within five seconds, whether we're going to lock down on the street or, you know, um, go to a different area and things like that. And I was really fortunate to be around people who had the experience 
to, you know, uh, look out for me, explain things to me. Um, and uh, I don't feel that exists so much anymore. Yeah, um, I totally feel that. Um, and to, to build on that, I want to consider like more feminist approaches to organization and movement building. Some of the problems that you just highlighted, right? Um, like if we if we focus too much on particular characteristics that like say exist within a movement, we miss all the kind of supplemental labor that is actually a part of it, right? There's a bunch of different things that are going on and to isolate certain practices or um, certain dynamics and say, well, that's actually what made it successful tends to ignore the broader set of um, things that made that success possible, right? And um, I wanna, I wanted to ask about how um, we could think about how in bringing together different people from different experiences, different walks of life, and building, have them build something that's fundamentally challenging and needing needed. There's obviously going to be like say conflict, right? And that's something that's ignored in a lot of organizing models, right? Um, there's going to be conflict, conflict that's going to need resolution, which means listening that makes healing possible. And um, I was wondering what um, what are different like practices and mechanisms or soft skills um, that you've encountered, Charmaine, that uh, help develop an approach to organizing that has care and affect at its center? Uh, very important. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if you can move through it, you can end out in a much stronger and more like, I just feel like once you move through conflict, you're just like more together mm-hmm. as an organization, as a group of people. But that requires skills, right? Absolutely. And that often means like outside mediation or or making the time for that. And I guess some of the, you know, principles I've seen that have worked too is that even in a big city like Toronto and people are coming in and out, that no one is expendable, right? So if someone um, mm-hmm. has hurt someone or, um, you know, has, you know, whatever been a center of conflict, that we don't start with like, well, if that person goes, we'll just have more people, you know? And so um, having that kind of commitment, and for me, it's commitment, it's a political commitment that people aren't expendable means that you have to put in time to, um, yeah, to do that work. It might not, it might mean that at the end, they're not the right person for the, to work with or their organization, but it does mean a lot of time. And unfortunately, we come, we live in a society where it's like, you know, people are expendable. You know, if you don't like working with someone, you're just supposed to, you know, give them up or um, not hear them out, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, like, I've seen, I've been part of organizations that have, like, come up with conflict resolution processes, spend time with outside mediators and things like that. Um, but it's, it's definitely a challenge. Like, it's, it's one that I don't really have any, like, clear answers or I can point to because oftentimes when you're putting that work into the into the care work, um, and there's certain people who do that, um, and means taking time away from other more immediate things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Would you two speak for like an institutionalized, I keep on saying that, but like, a, a, let's say, predefined group or space where conflict is addressed? Like to say, we will always have after a meeting five minutes so that it's normalized before a conflict escalates? Or is that like an overemphasis of this will go wrong? <laughs> I think, uh, uh, Charmaine, do you want to you speak to this first? No, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say that, that, I mean, I think it, it varies considerably what's most useful for, for what kind of organization, right? Because <laughs> when we talk about organizational forms on the left, you know, we could be talking about everything from, um, you know, membership-based organizations with really enormous memberships and, and elected leadership, like some unions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or certain kinds of uh, community organizing initiatives, uh, all the way to, you know, tiny ad hoc activist groups. Um, and and obviously, I think different kinds of approaches for working with conflict and harm are relevant for, for different kinds of organizations. Mm-hmm. That said, I do strongly believe, um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what Charmaine thinks about this, I do strongly believe that it's worthwhile for groups of people when they're working together to make plans about what they're going to do when there's conflict mm-hmm. and or harm mm-hmm. before it happens. I think, which is not to say that those plans pan out, right? It's not to say that like policies and structures that people agree upon um, are going to like smoothly work. But I do think just giving some collective thought 
to, um, you know, what, what you're going to do, right? Whether you're going to like uh, have someone you turn to as an outside mediator, whether you're going to do some kind of circle process um, where you really intentionally try to, to get into a conflict, um, whether you, you have a formal kind of accountability process around harm. I think it's worth talking about all that stuff. And uh, in our context here in Ottawa, um, in my collective, we put a workshop on a couple of years ago called Planning to Be Good to Each Other, which was specifically about trying to get other organizations here thinking about preparing some of those kinds of structures and policies before things go badly. Um, and we found that people here are really hungry for tools for how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think part of the reason why is because many of us have experiences of things going badly and there being nothing in place mm-hmm. to work with it. Um, and often then we really fumble, right? Um, Absolutely. And, and so I do think to whatever extent we can do some of that pre-planning, some of that structure building, I'm in favor of that kind of, that kind of institutional orientation. Totally. I ha- yeah, I, I agree that that central is just, you know, people are super complicated. And like, I mean, I organize known as legal here in Toronto, and we've had this long-standing conflict resolution process. And I have found that most people, when conflict happens, just don't want to use it, you know, and they just leave. Um, and it's sort of been the majority. And we were now, we're now actually like, okay, well, we spent like months, like getting feedback and, you know, developing this like really awesome policy that we've shared with other organizations being like, yeah, we have, we have the shit here, follow, follow what we do. And, um, and then for some reason, it just like never really, uh, pans out mm-hmm. <laughs> when, the, when the conflict actually happens. And, and where I found that things kind of, um, tend to, you know, you know, where a policy or an agreement can't really, uh, be used in a really like straightforward way is when people feel like, um, they've been harmed, you know, on the level of like, you know, um, there's been a lot of racism or sexism that they've experienced. And it's become so toxic that they still just can't participate in this like very, you know, linear process of like, first you talk to the person and then you bring it up on media here, and then you have, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes what people need is to go to the street to, you know, to um, removing some harm in the group, for example. And so, yeah, I, I do, I definitely like, and really, really, really uh, supportive of like being prepared for some, you know, mm-hmm. uh, around things that, um, yeah, that might cause like conflict or, or, or harm. Um, but I found also that like you have to be open to experimenting a lot, um, and you know, for the good of the group and hope that everyone has like the group's best, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, strength in mind, you know, and so, and sometimes that, that doesn't always happen in a really clear cut way, you know, and, um, yeah, it's definitely one I, I still, I still struggle with a lot. And I've seen like the emergence of new groups this summer in Toronto just really be destroyed by not having mechanisms of conflict and just, you know, um, like there was a rise of an Afro-Indigenous group that like the encampment, it was really strong, a lot of support and just a very, very, what one thing I will say about um, mm-hmm. conflict, if I can, is um, I just feel like it, it can't happen publicly. You know, like I just, I feel like every time you write an open letter around a group or a group dynamic, it has to really be the last, um, the last mechanism that people utilize um, mm-hmm. because I feel it really destroys the group to have that a public eye on something that, you know, before everything is followed in terms of like mediation or internal, uh, you know, um, I feel like that kind of public display of conflict really, really minimizes people's confidence in organizing an activist, right? Like, oh, I think a lot of people who, when I talk to you are like awesome and I'm like, do you want to join something? They're like, you know what? Your groups are really toxic. I see you all find each other on Twitter or Facebook. And so that's one thing I could say about like, you know, creating a good, like being good to each other is to like not use those kind of public means to call out people or like talk about these problems. Um, uh, like I try not to do it from like, you know, to social Democrats to like, you know, the most radical anarchists. I just like keep that off of, Social media also because like um, there's cops and government watching those watching those um, platforms mm-hmm. and um, and I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to be like paranoid but um, they will exploit our divisions against us. Yeah, I mean, I think there had been examples in the past and it has been discussed, but it seems to be 
a really hard task for us, like as a as a broader left, to to be nice to each other. <laughs> it's a bit shocking, actually, when you think about how widespread it can be. But on the other hand, I also feel it does actually connect to the, I don't want to say burden, because I like struggling for uh, change, but it is obviously resource intensive in, in terms of time. It is not always rewarding. There are struggles lost. I think around um, like migration and residency questions, there is a lot of people that suffer severely like all these there's a lot to to carry and sometimes it might just find the wrong exit <laughs> but you said something when you talked about the the conflict resolution ideas that people then just leave the group and that all these ideas you had before don't really work out which really leads to the section I'm very interested in on accountability, how to find a way to create accountability towards each other in a political group. It's not that relevant, I feel, in like very small cadre-like organizations where you have like where this accountability comes by just knowing each other very well and maybe calling each other constantly for, and having beers together or whatever. And it creates this kind of bond. But if you have a group that tries to be a bit more open or or aims to grow or be like more of a in direction of a movement, you see quite often that people just cycle in and out so fast. And that's not about shaming them because we don't always have control over what we do in our with our time. Um, people have very different reasons to come in and to go out. But obviously, it's it's problematic or it's not problematic. It's, it's very exhausting for those who stay. If there are people that you try to welcome, there are, there are people that you try to get in, but you never really know if they stay. Like it creates a frustration, I feel, that then also burns out those who who might have spent more time in the group. And so I was wondering in this accountability that we don't want to be a policing, that we don't want to be a control, or if you don't do your homework, you can't come back. You don't it, want to shame people. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, <laughs> stay so if, in the if, meeting. You have to stay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's not what you want. You want to have that... You want to give people the freedom to decide if they have the resources to be there or not, but you want them to do that probably considerate. And so I was wondering if you – I don't even know if I would ask Shramin. Maybe I ask Chris because Shramin <laughs> I want to hear both of you to it. Um, if you have like ideas how to address that. Accountability is a, um, a challenge. It's real. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to leave this podcast like everyone sucks. <laughs> I mean, I mean, so so I think there's different. So so in our context, a lot of the way people talk about accountability is at this point is very specific, right? They're talking about accountability in relation to people who harm other people, um, mm -hmm. and and how we hold those people accountable uh, and work toward repair, right? But um, what I'm hearing you bring up, Ancha, is is more about accountability in kind of a, a more general sense, right? Of like a kind of a, a shared sense of responsibility to other people that we're um, collectively working with. Am I understanding that right? Uh, exactly. The yeah. Okay. So, and, and I agree. I do think that there's differences, although I, I wouldn't fully bracket off even small, close-knit um, groups as necessarily ones where accountability <laughs> where there's a level of accountability. Um, I've, I've certainly participated in um, in collectives where accountability has been a constant challenge. Um, for example, the accountability of people following through on the things that they're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, in those groups, struggling with, well, then how, like, how do we make any plans when we can't actually know for sure that people are going to do what they say they're going to do? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then how do we address when people don't do what they say they're going to do in a way that, as you say, is not based on shaming? Right is not based on some kind of policing or punishment, um, and uh, but and then of course yeah in groups that are more open where people are coming and going that's there's like a whole different set of um, challenges related to accountability. I mean I do think and maybe this is maybe this is too vague or abstract but I do want to address um, 
the kind of set of habits or norms that I think we frequently uh, conduct ourselves with on the radical left that tend to make it um, uh, make it normal for people to overcommit constantly, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to constantly say they're going to do, and to feel pressure from other people around them to uh, say that they're going to do more than they actually can do, and actually, in many cases, to not really have a good understanding of what each of our own individual capacities are. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, to sort of constantly be pushed and pressed, and I do actually think this is of a piece with this neoliberal moment that we're living in, right? Where we're being um, forced institutionally every day to speed up and try and fit more and more uh, into into our day-to-day. Um, and I think this happens within activism and organizing, too. And so I, I don't think that we can magically change that, but I do think one of the ways that we can talk about accountability and talk about retention of people uh, in movements and organizations is to name some of those um, tendencies toward overcommitment that often leads toward um, people not doing what they're what they say they're going to do. That mm-hmm. often leads toward burnout as well. Um, and try to the best of our ability to uh, set some different collective norms around uh, taking on what we can actually do um, and being willing to ask for help from other people when we realize we can't do everything that we say that we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and having a more um, I mean, I think of this as a form of collective responsibility where we look out for one another. We look out for each other's well-being at the mm-hmm. same time that we try to identify goals together and make plans that we feel we can reasonably move towards. And of course, this is all really difficult in these crisis-ridden circumstances, right? There's all kinds of pressures um, that make it really, really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that part of that kind of collective responsibility um, is talking about that stuff in a pretty fine-grained way. Um, and I've certainly experienced the benefits of working in organizations where um, where people are there when I'm able to say, "Hey, actually, I can't do this thing. I thought I was going to be able to do it," and I and I don't feel um, like a terrible person <laughs> for reaching out and asking mm-hmm. for help, right? Mm-hmm. And also, I don't wait until the last minute and then at that point say, "Oh, well, I just couldn't do it." Um, and so I, I think there's something to be said for fostering that kind of accountability um, in a way that I think also um, for those kinds of more open-facing groups, right, where people are coming and going, um, there's much less of that kind of intense pressure to, as soon as you walk in the door, you just have to be, like, kind of saddled up with as much responsibility mm-hmm. as possible. Um, and then if you can't take it, right, you burn out and leave. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, and and I'm part of the problem with that whole model too, because it's not at all attentive to the realities of most people's lives, totally. which involves lots of work, paid and unpaid, um, and and lots of distress and crisis, right? Yeah, I think kind of when we're talking about people's capacity, it is like it's gonna it's getting pretty bad now, and I I just feel it's gonna be getting worse, you know, um, as uh, not only like people's don't know what their life is like next month. I feel people not knowing, you know, how they're going to survive week to week, day to day right now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and um, and we don't want to be a movement of just, you know, like class privileged or income privileged folks who can, who are able to do stuff. Um, and um, the question of capacity, is, I feel, is always like tied towards this kind of um, performative activism that most people engage in um but sometimes it's, it's more important to be outwardly facing as like um you know how people see us or strong or like who's who can be solid who has a good analysis but really the commitment is like how we can build with each other how we can build people's capacity with each other um and uh, and i mean by building capacity also i don't think it means by like how you can engage in work like what you can bring you know work-wise um, but uh, you can bring your skills, however, what they may be, um, and 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 feel like you can stay. Um, and I think also like a lot of times people don't make room for mistakes. Um, and I think when this sort of a crisis of accountability, um, people don't. Uh, and I really am speaking now of like you know um, this kind of um, like Chris's partner writes this, has this great book about purity politics and 
Um, I feel that has that is a huge issue right now. Like, mm-hmm. I don't believe that we have an issue with like you know Catholic culture or things like that. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a certain level of expectations around certain politics or like skills that people should have before they come. And I think we need to embrace that we, as we grow, we'll, we always will be having to encounter mistakes and we need to find a process of dealing with those mistakes, whether they're serious or small, um, and, um, and, and, and how those mistakes can make us stronger, right? And not divide us, uh, because people have different expectations about what people should bring to the group. Um, but yeah, I find that like uh, the sort of question about accountability is often that there's not a shared vision of like what the outcome should be, mm-hmm. you know, um, should there be mistakes or harm um, with the group. Um, there's a lot of division in the group of what the shared outcome is. And a lot of people tend to stay focused with the process around like calling out someone or shaming someone. But um, I was trying to start every kind of conversation where there was sort of conflict or harm or accountability with like, what is all our vision of like the best outcome of the situation? And right now, like, and I'm in um, a few groups right now. There's kind of like a crisis around capacity. We're shrinking. Um, a lot of people have left. And I try and like at every meeting, just be like, let's just center what our what our central vision is as a group. You know, what do we want to do? Like long term vision. I feel like that really helps ground uh, these kind of questions and struggles. You know, mm-hmm. around centering the group vision rather than like the individual conflicts that we have in the group. We really have to think about how to build like that basic layer of uh, solidarity between membership, right, or between people that are involved in these different uh, organizations. And like thinking back, um, I was reading an article the other day about uh, farm worker organizing in California, and how like you know long before Cesar Chavez, like that kind of um, there there had always been. Uh, militant farm worker activity in California. And the basis of that was built around, um, you know, like kin structures in the in the countryside, right? Um, you had families like, you know, cousins, uncles, um, nephews, uh, sons, fathers that were all working on the fields. And you had this basic solidarity that was there. So when this militant action was needed, like people were going to obviously show up because that was like, you know, it's your dad that just got fired um, and you're going to step in on that. Um, and it doesn't need to be like a kin structure, right? Like looking back at my union activity at uh, the University of California, like the moments in which like um, the organizing core there and the union was at its best was when we had like unknowingly built like really good uh, mechanisms, like where we got to bond with each other and really got to know each other. And I, I really hate saying this because at the time, like I really like didn't like any of this, like, oh, we have to like group build. And it felt like totally like hippie-esque. But like looking back, it was like when we were doing that quote unquote hippie shit, um, like we we're really building the basis from which we could rely on each other and count on each other and do even better things with each other. Yeah, I, I feel that that's also something that then either gets ignored in a lot of talking about organizing today, like how do you build that kind of culture of solidarity, or it gets like shrugged off as some kind of hippie shit. Charmaine, do you want to say something about hippie shit? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, no, you go ahead, Chris. I mean, I tend to okay. be like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Serene and I have had many conversations around this topic. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that, Serene? Yes. <laughs> it didn't show at all. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is something that I've, like, consistently count- encountered, right, in talking with activists and organizations across North America. Kind of precisely the dynamic that you're talking about, Daniel, where there that some of that kind of, like let's be honest, right? It's it's frequently like very kind of feminized care mm-hmm. work. Totally. Um, the activity of building interpersonal relationships, um, and and again going back to some of our earlier discussion, also working through conflict, also in in very kind of informal ways, working through conflict, right? Like trying to sort of knit together um, jagged kinds of relationships between people um, and repair um, smaller smaller kinds of breaks. You know, um, all of that, I think, frequently can get dismissed as hippie shit. And for sure, I do think that there's a danger. Um, and this is something that I've been kind 
too, um, from very experienced people pointing out that if you're in a group that is completely only focused on its own internal process, that that's a dead end. Um, it's, and it's like it's like a sort of a spiral downward that you can just go into. Um, that frequently that just ends up with people sort of swinging themselves out of it mm-hmm. um, in exhaustion. But um, at the same time, I don't think that we can afford to just disregard all that hippie shit, right? Like, I do think that building those kinds of bonds and those relationships um, and in really non-instrumental ways, right? Like, yeah. in the ways that are like, we care about other people, we're curious about other people, we um, are happy working in communities of people, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that is a basis for struggle. And it's also an outcome of struggle. Right. Like when people participate in struggle together, we build those bonds like through the experience and they're, they're unpredictable. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've had that experience here in the last couple of years, um, just working in a, a coalition trying to push back against uh, the ruling provincial government, which is super conservative and trying to run an austerity program. And here we try to build um, some alliances between some very different kinds. Of organizations in the city and it was really challenging in so many ways um and also i like met some amazing people and and uh there were we had some kind of moments of very unlikely forms of alliance um that were partly based on us just getting together regularly and being in the same room um and taking us some spirit of curiosity about what each other were up to mm-hmm. um so i do i do think that that kind of uh, activity is crucial and shouldn't, you know, really shouldn't be sidelined. I, at, at, at the end of it, I just, the, the last thing I'll say is I think what we're, what we're involved in is trying to rebuild cultures of solidarity, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think there have been some previous moments in movement histories on this continent where there have been some very, very tremendously strong cultures of solidarity. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've seen in the last 40, 50 years is an all out assault on those cultures of solidarity. Um, mm-hmm. Whether we're talking about the assault on the Black Liberation Movement, whether we're talking about the assault on the labor movement and the power of militant uh, union organizing, you know, whether we're talking about the assault on feminist and queer struggles, right? Like, um, so I think what we're doing right now is trying to rebuild and, and in some sense, take that cultural solidarity building in a more ambitious direction. But I don't think we should have any illusions. I think it's going to take a long time to, to build those kinds of like, uh, like strong uh, cultures of solidarity that we actually need in, in order to take on ruling relations. Which isn't to say that we can't start doing it and shouldn't start doing it, but just that we should take a long view of it. If I could just make a few comments about this. And there's also another hard question for me, too, because I... Um, I think people will say, like, I'm pretty good at maintaining relationships and, like, I do share a lot of care, but, like, sometimes I am kind of, like, I just want to, like, do the work and um, I, want, I want to be in a group that, like, just, like, you know, does good work and, like, can experience a few wins, you know, or, like, see a small win tangibly in front of them um, and not be so bogged down with the internal stuff. Um, but, um, you know, and, and also how I, I try and imagine, like, the organization I am in whether it's like known as legal or tools for change or, you know, up in the ante is um, that I want to be able to work with people I am not friends with, I dislike or disagree with, and that we can still somehow work together. And I feel a lot of times people see activism or movement as kind of magical entities, but when they enter, they'll have beautiful friendships and they'll have like all these things taken care of and they'll be like this group hug. And I just feel like it's really important to be able to say it's not going to be that. And um, I'm not trying to be like, don't come to movements to make friends. But I'm just sort of like, I try to be real with like, when you kind of do organizing and start new groups or join new groups, you're going to have to figure out ways to work with people that you might not like, that you might not hang out with after the meeting. Totally. You know, and that and that should be okay. Totally. So yeah, I'm a bit like I'm a bit like you know I flirt with the hippiness a little bit, like definitely <laughs> I do. But but we got to get to um, work. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. But I don't. I don't. I, I want to be real and be like we can't replace the like the the stuff that was stolen from us from neoliberalism. I personally really like Chris. Um, <laughs> That's on record. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like Chris. No, um, I, I just wish we Don't could say something. Again, um, 
I'm really stuck on the being nice thing. Like, like I don't know. I just like listen to or I just watch interactions online, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, how could your how how is that comment supposed to elicit a good response by anyone? And even even if even if like the point was like a solid kind of like qualm or something. The way that it gets delivered is just in such bad faith and so uncomradely <laughs> that it's just like, well, this is why we can't have the good things, <laughs> you know? Because like, if this is how we treat our friends, <laughs> like, who needs enemies? Like, again, I'm I'm totally with Charmaine. Like, when me and Charmaine see each other here in Berlin, or um, like, we always talk about like, oh, dude, I just want people to to function or resign. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Charmaine. <laughs> but uh, obviously, uh, that doesn't make for a fun organization. Um, and most of them resign. <laughs> most of them then resign <laughs> is the problem. Uh, but no, but like, just in general, like, even like, for example, when I was in a graduate, in the graduate student union, like when we were trying to tell people to to join the union, <laughs> like one of my friends was like, I don't know, like I start telling them about the dynamics of the union and it's like, Run, like run away from this. <laughs> but I think that the, the I, I just want someone to say something about like be nice, I guess, and how that really should like. I think all of this was about being yeah. nice. Yeah. Well, so, so this reference to being nice comes I, from another politics, right? Yeah, yeah. Like when when you had to highlight that as an approach. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I lolled really hard and like cackled in my room and then cried. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the being nice was just, you know, it, it was one example of, of something that uh, you know, came up in some conversations with, with various activists and organizers. And to be honest, I over the years have kind of had some, I guess, maybe some self criticism about framing it in terms of being nice because I do think there's a kind of white middle class niceness that actually is about completely ignoring injustice and violence. Totally. Um, and I'm not interested in that kind of niceness, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, but at the same time, like, you know, like one of the people I interviewed in that book was Harjit uh, Singhil, and uh, he, uh, he, a longtime organizer in California who'd been involved with Wobblies for a bunch of years. At one point in our conversation, he just flat out said, you know, what's really important is just don't be a fucking asshole and, <laughs> um, in terms of organizing. And I was, like, really struck by that, right? Because, yeah, as you're saying, like, there, we can, I think, all think of examples of people conducting themselves in actually really, really cruel and mean ways toward, toward comrades, uh, it, often in, in ways that I think are really unjustifiable. Totally. And I think part of the challenge is that at, this came up for me when, when I was listening to Shermin talk about conflict, which, and, and I, Shermin, I feel like you really have like such tremendous insight there. And I think part of the trouble is that we have different registers of how we do conflict, and one register of how we do conflict is with the institutions we oppose, right? Like how we do conflict with ruling institutions and with the people who run those. And then there's also the kind of conflict we have, which I think can be very generative and productive, well, I mean, the other kind of conflict could be generative and productive, too, especially if we win. Um, mm -hmm. But then there's the, the kind of conflict that we have with, with each other, within our movement, within our organization. Um, and I think a lot of times we, we take the conflict that we're most uh, accustomed to and comfortable with, which is fighting our enemies, right? Like fighting those institutions. And we, we try to use the same kind of tools of conflict on one another. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and I don't think it's the same, right? Like, I think, I, I mean, I'm sure that there, there are some aspects that carry over, but, but I do think that uh, we, I think we're struggling to find ways of having that more like generative form of conflict where we can disagree, where we can talk about mistakes, where we can talk about harm, and as Charmaine's saying, where we don't see each other as expendable, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's the part about, you know, bringing um, a kind of, uh, approach of like care care toward one another mm -hmm. um and uh and i do think that that's essential also for this question of retention right like people people aren't going to stick around if they feel like they're just constantly being um disregarded and attacked and yeah i mean it's a whole daniel what you're talking about online with the kinds of conversations that people have kind of like tear down culture is, is absolutely ridiculous um i mean 
I'm most interested in asking people questions, even people I really disagree with, most interested in asking questions that help me better understand how they're thinking about change and how change is going to happen. Right. Um, Because to me, that's about like, okay, so where, where do we overlap here in terms of the change making that we want to do together rather than like, let's get into the like fine grained differences between us. Um, And also, you know, I, I increasingly feel like um, I'm not particularly interested in attacking people that I disagree with politically on the left. I'm more interested in trying to build the stuff that feels most promising and useful totally. to me. Because mm-hmm. um, it, it feels like you could spend a lot of time like going after the people with whom you have disagreements. Yeah. Yeah, and that gets you nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, how I feel about niceness. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of that. I, um, it's, 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 I find it difficult because peer, people's experience of that is very subjective and I don't think there's a, a level that will, you know, the, the, the universal, you know, understanding. Um, and, um, mm, and, yeah. and also I think people can, I don't know, I, I always make um, jokes with Chris about this, but, you know, the first, like with Ethniante, I was working with like some pretty, like me Trotskyists. I think it just made me dead in me inside where I can work with anyone now. Um, and, um, <laughs> and maybe, uh, maybe everyone should go through that. I don't know. Um, I don't recommend it, but I think, um, I think like, in addition to like all the things you're talking about, I am always curious about like, what is it where people want to join, you know, really mean movements, you know, like um, why, why is, why are like, why is the alt-right or neo-fascist movements, why are they getting uptake both online and in person? And, you know, why do people join churches when, you know, or religious things when like, they, you know, religion is quite mean and cruel in some ways. Mm-hmm. And um, I think like all those elements of organization, I think we have to copy them or we have something to learn from. But um, but I think it's being able to articulate both like a politics that resonate with people, like based on their own um, like circumstances and, and make and make them feel like, yes, I cannot. I cannot just like continue life without organizing or trying to change that. I cannot just like resign myself to a life of hardship. And this, you know, group or this movement is speaking to that. And I feel that sometimes the very public conflict that, um, you know, the left has and like, and that is now having an uptake in liberal media, you know, with cancel culture that, you know, there are, it's obviously like a big like blemish on like activist movements that engage in that very public, you know, um, public conflict that we do, um, even though I think it's totally exaggerated and it's been used as a way to like really mm-hmm. tear down effective social movements. Totally. But um, I think um, rather than like what we should be thinking about is like having public um, displays that um, not only articulate our politics, but also the kind of world we want, right? Which is where um, care is central, right? And so um, whether you're talking about childcare or whether you're talking about um, living wage or having like public um, long-term care homes, um, things like that. I feel like being able to articulate that, like those are just our political goals, but that's also how we want to um, relate to one another. Um, I think being able to like be, like publicly state that in more coherent ways and effective ways um, would maybe shift things a bit. Unfortunately, right now, yeah. I think when um, there's any kind of like mainstream public, you know, awareness about the work we're doing, it's often, you know, anger, or, you know, um, like, look at these, like, you know, uh, vigilantes trying to, like, throw people out of their jobs and things like that. Um, I don't think that's our fault at all. But I think what we need to do is articulate um, our politics in a way that speaks to liberation and kindness, which is being nice. I feel <laughs> like a, my definition is nice, you know. Um, totally. Totally. But I, I, I do think that people need to be... I think that people um, expect niceness. I, I I often feel in this in this culture I, I'm in right now, people assume that means no conflict, you know. And I I think that is like a like a false equation. Or you know, I, I think people need to expect to be engaged in, in conflict and discussion um, around these political ideas that are trying to put forward. And um, yeah, whether that's nice or not, I don't know. It's hard for me to judge. But yeah, I'll just leave that there. Awesome. Well, I think that just about covers everything we had lined up, team. Uh, thank you, Charmaine. Thank you, Chris, for coming in. Thank you. 
good to talk to you virtually. Maybe we can do it in person one day. That would be nice. <laughs> 100%. You can find out more about Charmaine and Chris in the episode description. Thank you for tuning in to Spadework Podcast, an educational project by Werkstatt für Bewegungsbildung, a movement school dedicated to providing ordinary people with the tools capable of building resilient, rewarding, and effective political organizations. Please find a link to the Werkstatt in the description. This project is made possible by so many labors. We'd like to thank Jana Engel for being our babysitter for the evening. We'd also like to thank the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and Rohr Magazine for their comradely support. Artwork and music are a product of Solidarity by Amanda Prieb and Tyler Don. You can find links to Amanda's art and Tyler's music in the description. <laughs>